I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal. And today our guest is Greg Varallo, a partner at Bernstein Litowitz and head of the firm's Wilmington office. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. David, great to see you. Happy to be here. So we're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background and your switch from Richards Layton to Bernstein, moving from the corporate side to the shareholder side. A couple of cases in Delaware this year, the Williams Company poison pill case, and then the Boardwalk case, which came down early in November. A little bit about the tenure of Andy Bouchard as the chancellor of the Delaware Court of Chancery, a very active seven years that ended when Andy stepped down as chancellor in May. And then finally, your interests in hunting, poker, and the American University of Rome. So with that, tell us about yourself, how you came to practice in Delaware. Sure. I came to practice in Delaware in 1983. That was the last century, by the way, because I had a great corporation professor at Temple University School of Law who knew that Delaware law was developing at a fast pace and suggested that the firms there might be interesting to look at. I did, against all odds, a blue-collar kid from Philly got a job at Richards, Leighton and Finger. I started there in September of 83, and I finished my term as president of the firm in June of 2019. It was a fantastic 36 years. I got to meet and work with fascinating people all across the globe. I probably traveled to, I don't know, a dozen or more countries and darn near all 50 states doing what I did. I have the highest regard for the firm. And as I said, I was privileged to spend my last three years there in leadership of the firm as its president and CEO. After, as my term wound down and as it became clear that I would, in fact, not be staging a coup and in turn handing over the reins to my successor, who was already nominated and effectively chosen, I had an approach from a friend on the plaintiff side, a guy by the name of Mark Lubavitch who I had worked with very closely in settling a number of uh, very significant cases in both instances for large companies in which the Murdoch family was the substantial shareholder. And both those cases had ended very well, both from the plaintiff side and the defendant's side. And having worked with Mark closely in uh, settling those cases and with his partner, Max Berger, I came to know them really well. And when Mark approached me about switching practices and opening an office for them in Delaware, I took him seriously because, frankly, I had a lot of respect for Mark and Max and the firm. And as I thought a lot about what to do, I guess throwing in there the fact that I turned 60 during this time period, which was an opportunity for some introspection and reflection, it occurred to me, David, that There wasn't anything left to do at Richards that I had been lucky enough and privileged enough to do pretty much all that one could do at a firm like Richards, which has a very special place for me in my heart. It's just a terrific firm. And this was an opportunity to, in a very entrepreneurial way, do something entirely new, to work with people that I didn't know, but in an area where it would require some new learning on my part and hopefully bringing some skills I had learned over the course of my career to a new perspective on practice. 
And so uh, with some introspection and with my wife's uh, blessing, and it happens to be my 36th wedding anniversary today, so I shout out to my wife and her support of me in the last uh, 36 years. We made the transition over and it's worked fantastically well. It's been a really exciting time. So how has that transition gone from the corporate side to the shareholder side? And what have you learned as you've gone through it? I think it's gone remarkably smoothly, to be honest with you. I think when you approach any major life change like that, you do so with a little bit of trepidation. My friends and my wife would tell you that modesty doesn't come immediately easily to me. So it was a little bit hard to approach it with some degree of modesty, but I tried. And I found to my great delight a very welcoming reception on the plaintiff side, not only at my new firm, but also among the many co-counsel we work with. And I was indeed surprised because I think as a defense lawyer, I think your perspective on the plaintiff's bar is unduly cabined, unduly narrow. And coming over, I was really heartened by the reception and by how many hardworking, really good lawyers I've had a chance to work with just in the last two years uh, since coming over. And the transition went a lot more smoothly than I thought it might, to be frank. One of the most prominent cases you've worked on on the plaintiff's side involved a challenge to a poison pill that Williams put in place at the beginning of the pandemic. Tell us about that litigation, your perspective on it, and the decision that Chancellor McCormick issued in, I believe, April. Wow. Thank you for the opportunity, because this is a fun one to talk about. So let me start with the middle question, which is my perspective. My perspective on this is a little bit different than you might think, because while at Richards 11 years ago, I had the privilege of litigating a case called Selectica, And Selectica was the first use of a 5% trigger in a poison pill rights plan. In Selectica, the use of the trigger was designed very specifically to protect NOL assets, given the way the tax code works. And we not only put the pill in, but it was actually triggered and we actually utilized, we deployed the pill for the first time. And I had the privilege of leading the trial team and the appeal, and we won. Uh, both a trial and appeal, upholding the use of a 5% pill to protect NOL assets. Well, when my friend Steve Woloski came along and we decided to go forward and challenge the Williams pill, it was only the second time in Delaware legal history that a 5% trigger was presented to the court. So my perspective on it was a little bit different having come from defending the 5% trigger And as we looked at this case, it became very clear that this was nothing at all like any other poison pill. And I say that for a couple of reasons. First, the 5% trigger, as I said, was only the second time that we've been used, that that lower trigger had been used in Delaware litigation in a case that was litigated. And I think more importantly, this pill had within it a really, really broad aggregation provision, commonly known as a Wolfpack provision aggregating all those acting in concert in a very, very broad way. It also had a daisy chain provision, which is to say that you could be aggregated with anyone else you talked to and the persons they were acting in concert with, even if you didn't know who they were acting in concert with. 
And it purported to have a carve out, which was facially broken, which we made clear was facially broken and which the Williams companies chose not to fix. The court found that that carve out, notwithstanding being intended to cover a great many potentially passive investors, actually covered no more than three, literally covered no more than three investors. And as we got into the discovery and the trial, it it was very clear that unlike the typical rights plan, which could have proper uses in the right situation, this was deployed and was being used for a very particular purpose unrelated to traditional rights plan practice. And that purpose was to stop all shareholder activism for a year. It was a one-year pill. And the view of the board was that COVID presented unusual challenges to management that the Williams companies moved about a third of the natural gas that moved across the United States and Canada each day, and that there was a great risk that management could lose focus in having to deal with those pesky investor activists. And so we were just going to shut it down for a year. And as we got into it, I can recall discussing with some of the directors their views on activism and They were frank to admit that there is, even in their view, socially positive activism, ESG, for example, in addition to uh, sort of activism they would view as negative. And this pill made no distinction between the two. And one of the directors admitted in deposition testimony that was played at trial that even an investor knocking on the door to talk with the board about uh, governance or other ESG matters could be read to trigger this pill. So it was an amazingly broad pill. It brought together this 5% trigger, which was very rare, and an extraordinarily broad latest generation Wolfpack provision. And the Court of Chancery said, wait a minute, (laughs) you know, there may be circumstances in which shareholder activism presents a threat to corporate policy, but certainly you can't say that undifferentiated activism always could be a threat. And I think the court was entirely correct in a very interesting and well-reasoned 89-page post-trial opinion. And what I think doesn't really matter because the Supreme Court of Delaware last week affirmed the opinion in a one-sentence order. So I think the opinion is, is really interesting reading. It is a clear warning for corporate practitioners and those on the front line to be very careful about using these aggregation provisions, Wolfpack provisions. And it affirms and reaffirms that the so-called Unical standard of review is going to be utilized in, in connection with the adoption of any pill. That was set down pretty clearly in Selectica, but it was appealed again on that basis, and the Supreme Court simply affirmed the Chancellor's opinion. At the outset of your career, and for maybe the first couple of decades thereafter, the heart of Delaware litigation or certainly the most interesting cases in Delaware tended to involve corporations. And those cases were very heavy on motion practice. In recent years, we've seen a shift to litigation involving partnership law, which is a more and more important part of Delaware entity law generally. And in that context, could you discuss the decision involving boardwalk that came down on November 12th, the Boardwalk Limited Partnership that is controlled by Lowe's. Yeah, a really interesting decision. There has been a fair amount of litigation around these so-called MLPs, Master Limited Partnerships, that are used in the energy industry. And largely, that litigation has been 
decided in favor of defendants. The flexibility in the MLP statute is very, very broad. The ability to disclaim fiduciary duties, for example, is as broad as it comes under law. And these entities have been created specifically contemplating so-called drop-down transactions, self-dealing transactions. And as a result, they've been constructed in a way to make challenge to the self-dealing transactions extraordinarily difficult. Well, Vice Chancellor Lasser's boardwalk decision of early November is one of the very first to tag a board with a very large verdict for, frankly, not complying with the provisions of the MLP agreement. The court's decision after trial enters a judgment in the amount of roughly $700 million in damages plus interest. Interest probably will drive it closer to $800 or more million dollars. I believe that's the second largest verdict ever entered in a Delaware court in any matter of any sort, not only Chancery, but any court in Delaware. And this very, very interesting decision. I have to say, as a lifelong Delaware lawyer, one of the things I found most interesting about the decision, other than the 700 plus million dollar headline, was the court's conclusion that it was, I'm paraphrasing here, but wrong for a non-Delaware lawyer to give some of the opinions, the legal opinions that were given in this particular case that allowed the transaction to go forward. One of those opinions pertained to whether a a so-called material adverse change or material adverse event had occurred. And the court pointed out that the largest law firm in Delaware, a firm which I have some familiarity with, I mentioned earlier, Richard Slayton and Finger, declined to give an opinion on whether an MAE had uh, occurred in this circumstance. And that one of the largest national firms with a major office in Delaware had likewise declined to give that opinion. But nonetheless, these two Delaware firms, not having given the opinion, a Texas national firm out of Texas had given that opinion, which allowed the case to go forward. The court was, I think it's fair to say, fairly harsh in its criticism of the lawyer who gave that opinion, of the firm that gave that opinion. And one of the things that deal lawyers ought to be thinking about as a result of this is the circumstances under which non-routine Delaware opinions ought to be given at all by non-Delaware firms. I think this decision is likely to lead to a re-examination or perhaps should more appropriately lead to a re-examination around non-Delaware firms giving Delaware opinions, at least as to non-routine matters. So it's an interesting read. It's, It's a very long decision, very thoughtful decision. Interesting read when you get beyond the sort of startling headline of the verdict. But when you get right down to it, it is importantly about the law of giving legal opinions. And I'm not aware of too many cases, at least during my career, that have ever delved into that subject. And I predict this will be one that the corporate practitioners do, in fact, spend a lot of time thinking about. Lowe's is appealing that decision to the Delaware Supreme Court. How do you see the appeal playing out? You know, David, if I had uh, a crystal ball, I suspect I'd be spending more time buying and selling stocks than practicing law. But, you know, I will say that having read the opinion carefully, Westchester Lasseter made a great number of factual findings. He built his very carefully constructed opinions around factual findings and credibility determinations. And as you probably know, the most difficult thing to reverse on appeal in any court, but especially in Delaware, is a trial court opinion built around credibility determinations of the trial judge. So if I were a betting person, I would bet that this would be affirmed, but we'll see. You know, I've never served on the Delaware Supreme Court or any court for that matter. And what I think about these things 
isn't as important as five jurists in Dover. You mentioned that turning 60 inspired you to engage in some reflection. When I talked to Andy Bouchard for an interview a couple of weeks ago, he said that turning 60 had the same effect on him and that one of the reasons he stepped down from the Delaware Court of Chancery was to figure out what he wanted to do with the rest of his legal career. Could you talk about Andy's seven years as chancellor on the court and his legacy and what he accomplished in that time? Sure. When I began practicing before the court, the court was made up of three judges, three chancellor and two vice chancellors. We then expanded to five. And under Andy's leadership, the court was expanded to seven judges, which is a really big thing for those who practice in the court. We got two wonderful new judges in addition to the other members of the court. And the court continues to distinguish itself every single day, working hard and putting out great legal work, great opinions. I would also say by way of a plug for the court that we've just come through (laughs) the weirdest two years, at least in my life. And I suspect I'm not alone in that view. And this court did not miss a beat. Under Andy's leadership, largely under Andy's leadership during the COVID period, the court continued to hold hearings every single day. It was the first court to embrace video technology, Zoom technology. And I personally probably presented, I don't know, a dozen significant legal arguments to the court using Zoom, tried at least a couple of cases, including the Williams case, entirely using Zoom. And the court jumped right in, didn't miss a beat, worked every bit as hard as it always did under adverse circumstances and continued to distinguish itself. And look, you know, all of our chancellors are great public servants, but leadership comes from the top in many cases. And Andy led right into that period and right through it in a way that perhaps is his greatest legacy. It's funny, an IT professional will tell you that they're doing best when nobody thinks about them, right? And I think that the, strangely, you know, Andy's greatest achievement, at least in my view, and that is keeping things moving and never missing a beat while the rest of the world panicked and closed down and did crazy things, will never really be fully recognized just because it's so obvious that it just passes you right by. And yet it took great leadership to rally the troops, keep the bar happy and keep moving forward without missing a beat. So that's one for those more precedent-minded, Andy's famously associated with the Trulia decision, which was, I think, long overdue when it came and took some leadership and, frankly, some guts to do. And I think those of us on the investor side who are serious about our practice think Trulia was a positive development. And I know I'm not alone in that view. And the chancellor was also responsible for the Corwin decision, which was an important step forward in balancing and getting equilibrium, I think, in the way these deal cases are litigated. And I think both have been well-received over time. Both have been built upon. And I think when you go back and study those seven years, I think those two decisions in particular will stand the test of time and are you know, a tribute to the chancellor's hard work. What repercussions have there been from, especially the core win, that the court and the lawyers who practice in front of it, both on the corporate and shareholder side, are still dealing with and may deal with for several years to come? I think it's interesting. We've had enormous developments in the Delaware corporate law in the last year or two. Well, four or five anyway. Um, thinking of things like Corwin, MFW, Trulia, 
you know, these landmark and important cases, which have set the stage for, I think, more predictability and certainty around how transactional planners do their work. But when you have major developments like that all at once, and these all came in a relatively short period of time, the way the common law works, I, I think it takes a significant amount of time, perhaps a decade or more, to really flesh out those doctrines, to test their boundaries, to figure out what the boundary conditions around MFW and around Coro and around Truly are. And I think you've seen that from the court in its workload day by day as suits have been brought challenging different perspectives, different the boundary conditions effectively of those doctrines. I think you'll continue to see that at least for another couple of years as the doctrines are modified and, and filled out, as it were. And I expect that the next couple of years will continue to be trial heavy. I would say one of the things we've seen in the last couple of years has been the rise of the crazy billionaires controlling stockholders of large companies who have decided that either the rules don't apply to them or that the risk of litigating to their reputation really isn't a risk that they're worried about. And so they're going to take matters to trial. And we've seen many more matters go to trial. And that excites me personally because <laughs> I'm a trial lawyer. I'm not a litigator. I've been a trial lawyer all my life. And then finally, uh, tell us about hunting, poker, and then your love for the American College in Rome. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm happy to. You know, for a while, my wife probably would have told you that I practice law to engage in my hunting habit. I do big game hunting. I've enjoyed it for uh, many years. And I'm at the point where I backed off a little bit because the travel and some of the conditions are for a lot of big game hunting, a little bit rough on an older guy. You know, doing the climb along the ridge at 10,000 feet in the Rockies is not something that comes as quite as easy as it used to, but uh, I enjoy that. And I've got a hunting trip coming up in January in Mexico that I'm looking forward to. And, and then, of course, you're basically at the beginning of the eastern shore of Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia. I mean, you must be hunting there as well. Yeah, you know, I've had the good luck of doing some really great goose and duck hunting over the years uh, on the Eastern Shore. One of my former partners has a place that's uh, beautifully located for geese. And I've got a client and a friend who's got some farmland down on the Eastern Shore that's been a lot of fun to hunt on. So, yes. And by the way, I'm not the only Delaware lawyer that uh, has this passion. Um, I've been privileged to have the opportunity to do some waterfowling with former Chief Justice Myron Steele and uh, a, a, a big hunter. He he is he, he is devoted to the craft. Indeed, he is, and he's quite good at it too. He's quite good at it. So that's been fun. Poker, well, you know, um, we litigate in a world where we have imperfect information, and you play competitive poker in a world where you've got imperfect information, and there's some. I think overlap between the two, and I've always enjoyed uh, both. And American University of Rome, wow, that's that's a great one. A terrific university on the Janiculum Hill of Rome with a small student body, about half of which is American students and about half of which is rest of the world, which in addition to being located in Rome, provides students the opportunity to learn in an environment where I think it's fair to say the U.S. view of the world isn't necessarily the only view expressed and maybe not even the predominant view. The university was funded while I was on its board 
with a generous series of contributions that allowed a number of students from uh, war-torn Syria to matriculate there. And listening to students learning in an environment where other students in the classroom, you know, had just lived through a civil war that literally devastated their country and were able to bring the perspective of, very different perspective uh, to the fore, I thought was really, really fascinating. And I think this institution serves an incredibly important role in the world, and that is turning out students who might one day be citizens of the world rather than citizens of any particular country. And I'll just give a shout out to Dr. Springer, who's our new president and has been doing a fabulous job and led the, the organization through a very difficult period when everybody was locked down in Italy. So it's been a real challenge, but they're alive and kicking and doing well. Greg, thank you so much for joining us. It was a pleasure to chat with you, and sometime we'll do drinks in person. For Drinks with the Deal, I'm David Marcus.